Boker Tov. Okay, that's Hebrew for a good morning. We'll try to get Boker Tov. Are you awake? I mean, I've got jet lag excuse. You've got rain, I guess, right? It's uh, great to be back from Israel. I, I miss you guys. Well, here's where you say with great sincerity, man, what happened? I left. You guys were so nice. It's come back. It's like, well, there he is again. going to be one of these long sermons. Okay, try it with great sincerity. We missed you too. I don't believe you. No, thank you. I appreciate it. And uh, hey, you who have been praying for rain, good job. But you can stop now just for a little while maybe. Although, you know, uh, coming back from Israel especially, those of you who have been there will relate, you know that rain in the Bible is always a blessing. You notice that? One of the chief blessings, one of the chief pictures in the Bible for God's blessing and His goodness is rain. And there's a cultural difference there because we tend to look at it as not so much a blessing because it gets in our way of recreating outdoors, right? So, hey, praise God for the blessing of rain this morning. Amen? Amen. Now, I'm happy to report that the Holy Land is still what some Christian scholars call the fifth gospel. That is, the land of Israel still loudly proclaims the story of our God and is still changing lives. And this trip in particular, one thing in particular struck me on this trip because, oh, probably I knew, uh, probably one reason was because I knew I was going to get into something with you uh, a little bit different in this upcoming series when I got back. But throughout the trip, I was continually taken aback at the power of a good story and just how much good stories deeply impact and even change lives. Everyone, it seems, loves a good story. I was at Starbucks this past week waiting for a friend who was running late, and so I had time to do a little people watching and, of course, listen in on other people's conversations. Is that wrong? (laughs) They're in a public place. If they're loud enough to hear, you know, I... But um, I, I noticed that no matter where I turned, no matter where I tuned in and out, people were telling stories. And what happened yesterday? What the kids were up to? An experience at the hospital. Uh, last week at Elitch's, one woman was having a little bit too fun telling the story to her friends of how her husband fell off the roof. So I, but people were telling all sorts, he's fine. From what I could gather, he was fine. I mean, <laughs> don't know whether to laugh at that or not, right? Does she have a problem? No, he's fine. But, but all around me, people were telling stories, all sorts of stories. And I remember thinking, hey, everyone loves a good story. Why is that, do you think? Why, why are we so interested in stories? Probably a lot of ways we could answer that question. But one reason, one reason I think is because we can... We can join in. We can live vicariously even to what's going on in the story. What would we do if we were involved in that story? You know, how would we feel? Which bachelor or bachelorette would we pick? And so, and so we hear a good story. I don't know if that's a good story. 
But at least if we hear a good story, it draws us in somehow. You know, we, we, become, we become a part of the story for at least a little while. That developing story makes us curious. See, well, what's that character going to do next? And where's the story going to go? And, and how's it going to end? And will the story make us sad or angry? Will it make us laugh or will it make us cry? What's there? You know, in the story that we can measure against or measure with our own life's story. When I got back from Starbucks, I Googled around online looking in particular for short stories. I was reminded sitting in the coffee shop that when I was in high school, I loved reading, you know, short stories, the ones with word limits. And I even played around trying to write short stories, which is really hard to do well, especially for me. You're probably not surprised I can't write something short, but <laughs> before, um, before long in my office uh, online page, I, I got lost in these stories I was reading, one after the other. I finally had to force myself to stop before the day was gone, but I, I picked one, uh, really at random, uh, one that touched me a bit, but there were many. Uh, a very short, short story, just to, to illustrate a bit for us this morning how a good story draws us in. This story is an award-winning story by Paul Tagg, and it's called The Long Walk Home. See what you think. Tuesday's shadows lengthened in Lahaina on the island of Maui. Pristine air made the neighboring islands of Lanai and Malachi appear ever so close. Alice waited patiently under the banyan tree for her husband, returning from his day of fishing. As the sun set, she spotted him beyond the distant reach of the massive tree. They engaged in small talk as they trudged up the narrow streets. As home drew near... Alice spotted a younger woman ahead. Hello, Mom. How are you? Alice stared at the woman briefly, but then continued walking. Come on, Harry, let's get you inside and fed. The daughter's face saddened. It had been more than a year now since Alice forgot that Harry had died at sea on a Tuesday, ten years earlier. It's incredible, isn't it? In only 128 words, we're drawn in to the story. We're curious where it's going and how it's going to end. We eagerly listen for and take in each new piece of information and turn of events. And and stories like this one, at least, the the best stories, at least, they tell us far more than what they say with letters and words and phrases. The best stories pull at things other than only our mind. They, They tug at things like sympathy and empathy from us. In this one, for Alice and the loss of her husband, Harry, and 
And we wonder b- between the lines of the story, even whether it's Alzheimer's or a broken heart or both, that has caused Alice to forget her great loss and even forget her daughter's face. And if we've experienced ourselves such loss, well, then the story, then the story touches us even more deeply because we can relate. Maybe that's why everyone is so attentive and interested and loves a good story. Good stories touch us in meaningful ways that we can relate to. Maybe they make us feel less alone. Last year, in 2009, Americans spent over $10 billion at the movie box office. Roughly twice that in video rentals for a total of $30 billion last year on the movies. $30 billion. Our fascination with a good story will drive us to spend significant amounts of time and money listening to them, experiencing them, relating to them. And because people are so fascinated with a good story, particularly in our culture, it seems, when it's told in the movies, movies provide an amazing way to tell stories. And so Christians, too, who have a great story to tell, they've also been using movies over the years to tell the stories in the Bible and the story of Jesus. One problem, however with Christian movies is they can have a limited audience. Some people just won't go to a so-called Christian movie because it's, it's a Christian movie. And, and sadly, in my opinion, you know, many Christian movies, at least, they're rather lacking in production value. Have you ever noticed? Yeah, I mean, what is that? We got the greatest story ever told... And we put it up on screen, and it's like, you know, the acting isn't as good. The storyline, it's like, could you rewrite that a few more times, maybe? You know, it feels a little forced or stiff or too preachy, and they can sometimes even seem a little cheesy or lame or detached from real or everyday life. The, the problems and the conflicts resolved you know, the, the, the resolution comes a little too easy sometimes. You know? It's like, come to know Jesus. I do! All my problems go away. Sometimes that happens, but sometimes they don't, does it? Now, God will be with you in those problems. I think Christian movies are getting better, but they still have a long way to go, it seems to me, before they're made with the same excellence compared to many other movies. I encourage teens that I teach, I encourage the ones here, anyone, if you're into that sort of thing, get into Hollywood and and, and make a good Christian movie. You know, why not? Use that window. Uh, It has people's attention. We'll talk a little bit more about that because I'm going to suggest another way, I think, that Christians can use right now, movies at least, to talk about God. And using movies in this other way, I'll suggest, and I'll try to illustrate this morning and the next few weeks, it, 
It doesn't suffer from the risk and reality of a limited audience because their production value is very, very high. The best writers and actors and effects and directors are involved. And, and what I'm talking about is using secular movies with good things to say to point people to God. Many movies illustrate before our very eyes people living out at least glimpses here and there a a biblical worldview. We can use good things in movies, provocative things even, to enter into the conversation, to, to point to God, who after all is the author of all good things, the Bible says, including then the good things that we see in the movies. I recently read an article that called the movie The Blind Side the best Christian film of 2009. And I thought, well, how intriguing since that movie was made by a secular production company. How could a secular company make the best Christian film of the year? And the answer is, the movie put on display Christian values in a very powerful, well-produced, well-acted, captivating story. A story people still want to keep talking about. A story that went on even to earn Oscar recognition. And it seems to me that if people are talking a lot about something, are interested in something, well, Christians ought to be in there, like seeing what that's all about. In that conversation, at least. People love to talk about movies, and, and Christians can in turn add to that discussion how the movie compares or even contrasts with a biblical worldview and our God, how good things maybe we see in the movies get it right, and, and even how the bad things don't get it right at all. And so we can use even secular movies, perhaps especially secular movies, since that's what everyone's watching and talking about, we can use them to illustrate biblical truth to people, to tell people more about God and what it means to be a Christian. And, and I don't know about you, but I can always use yet another way to talk to people about Jesus. Not all of us, perhaps, are especially gifted at just, you know, directly bringing up Jesus or the Bible or a biblical worldview with people. You get teens sometimes, especially that uh, I work with, that are uncomfortable with that. And, and we all can develop that gift over time, and I think that's a good gift to develop. But even when or if fully developed, sometimes that, that direct, establish a beachfront approach, you know, leading with the Bible and the four spiritual laws, well, it doesn't suit the occasion sometimes, it seems to me. If you ever go out uh, to a restaurant and eat with Pastor George, you'll be blessed to see a fully developed, direct approach to evangelism in action. First of all, the man can spot a fellow veteran at 100 paces across a crowded room like that. And suddenly, in mid-sentence, when the spirit moves or the timing's right, he'll be talking, and all of a sudden he'll politely excuse himself from your table, tell you he'll be right back, and you watch as you trot over to where that vet is sitting, plop down in their booth if there's room, give them a pamphlet he has that tells a bit of his story in coming to know the Lord, chat about what ship or regiment or war they fought in, 
And then humbly offer that there might be something for them in his story if they would get a chance to read it sometime. Slap him on the back and suddenly he's back in your booth continuing his lunch across the table like he never left. All in the blink of an eye. And he does it with such, George, you do that with such ease and grace. It's astounding to me. I've yet to see a single person offended or even mildly irritated or impatient. That's a gift. And George has this. He has this way with, with, with people. And I, I try something like that, and it usually just annoys people. <laughs> I, I, I think they sense lawyer or, or something. <laughs> I, but my point is, is not everyone is gifted in the same way to, to, to talk about God. So maybe this additional way to talk about God, talk about your faith, may come in handy someday for you. Such is my hope and my intent in this series. And so for the next few weeks at least, I'm going to try and show how even secular movies might be used to tell people about the kingdom of God. How these good stories might be used to point to the author of everything good even if the people writing the story or making the movie never intended to use the story to point to God. It's another way, at least, I think, that we can talk about God with people. One that may not raise as, as much resistance in people as sometimes happens when they feel going in, it's a, it's a Christian movie, or when it starts to feel preachy to them. And by the way, the, the testimony of these movies isn't only for those who don't already know Jesus as Lord and Savior. These movies, these movies are also very valuable to already Christians to learn more about God and what it means to be Christian. This morning I picked uh, an easy movie to start with, uh, The Blind Side. Easy because the original story, at least the book it seems, was indeed written to honor God. Now, even if the movie itself pulls back from making that the overt and obvious message, less obvious at least, I think, than I found in the book. Now, to introduce The Blind Side, if you haven't yet seen the movie, or even if you have, John Burns and Manda Cook put together a short summary of the film that I think you'll enjoy. It's a little tongue-in-cheek, but uh, made me laugh when I saw it before leaving for Israel. So here's their three-minute recap of the movie The Blind Side. Let's watch. Here's everything you need to know about The Blind Side in three minutes, 16 seconds. The Blind Side is the story of Big Mike. I don't like to be called Big Mike. Sorry of Michael Orr, a poor high school kid in Tennessee. He's seen one day by the coach of a wealthy private Christian school on the rich side of town. The coach wants Michael. The coach pleads Michael's case to the admissions board. They're skeptical as .16 GPA. The coach lectures the board on what it means to be Christian. Look at the wall. Christian. We either take that seriously or we paint over it compelling. Michael is accepted to the school. The teachers complain about Michael's lack of participation in class. His science teacher sees potential in him and tells the other teachers how to teach him. They all try the new approach, except the English teacher. He's a grump. I'm sorry. I will not give a student a grade he or she doesn't deserve. But Michael is still a poor kid without a real place to call home and no clothes except the ones he's wearing. Walking home from a school event on a cold fall evening, he's intercepted by the Tui family. The Tuies own many Taco Bells in Tennessee. Big money. Leanne Tui insists that Michael come home with the family and stay the night. He does. The next day, Leanne takes him to a big and tall store to buy clothes. He picks out some polo shirts with red and yellow stripes. He looks like Harry Potter. 
a really big Harry Potter. After living with the Tuohys for a few weeks, Leanne asks Michael if he'd like more permanent arrangements in their house. Michael consents. Leanne makes Michael a room of his own. Never had one before. What, a room to yourself? A bed. Leanne cries. Very touching. At the end of the semester, Michael's grades are high enough for him to play sports. The Tuohys buy Michael a truck. He takes the Tuohys' young son, SJ, for a ride. He gets in a wreck and uses his arm to stop the airbag from hitting SJ. That's a bag of air traveling at 200 miles per hour. Impressive. Back on the football field, Michael is not the natural the coach expected. Leanne witnesses his failures and momentarily takes over as coach. She tells Michael the team is his family. His job is to protect his family. Now Michael is a natural. All he needed was the right analogy. During the first game of the season, Michael struggles. Sudden inspiration strikes and he becomes the star player. His sports acumen is cut on tape and sent to every college coach in the region. They all want him. Michael's grades are too low to qualify for the scholarships offered to him. When your grades are low, who are you going to call? Kathy Bates, of course. You dirty bird. How could you? No, not that, Kathy Bates. This one. It's professional tutor, Miss Sue. It's something I feel you should be aware of before you hire me. Oh, what is it? I'm a Democrat. Shocking. Michael improves his grades in all classes except English. Recall grumpy literary nemesis. He writes an essay that melts the heart of even the rhetorical snob. You should hope for courage and try for honor. And maybe even pray that the people telling you what to do have some too. How poetic. After interviewing every college who knocks at his door, Michael chooses to go to Ole Miss, a.k.a. University of Mississippi. All the Tuohys attended Ole Miss. The Tuohys Taco Bell funds support Ole Miss. The NCAA suspects foul play. They bought you a car no. and paid for a tutor. No. All is part of a plan to ensure that you play football for the University of Mississippi. Michael gets upset and runs away. He comes back. He chooses Ole Miss again and tells the NCAA woman his rationale. Because it's where my family goes to school. It's where they've always gone to school. Very touching. Michael moves to the campus of Ole Miss. His tutor comes too. The credits begin to roll. They are interrupted by updates on Michael and his family. Michael graduated Ole Miss and made the Dean's List. In 2009, he was drafted as a player for the Baltimore Ravens. It's all a true story. That makes it even better. Whew! Yeah. If only they could do that with my sermons, we'd be in real business. I'd... <laughs> oh, man. It's okay. You tease the ones you love. You tease the ones you love. I don't... Uh, a few things this morning in the time we have left that struck me. I, a few things, I think, that illustrate oh so well what our God is like and what our witness but must be. Uh, all areas where we can join in the very public buzz that this movie continues to generate around the world. I'm sure there are many other things, but these things in particular struck me. First, as I was watching and re-watching The Blind Side this past week, I, I looked for one overriding message that hit me, and I thought one thing especially stood out for me, and that's the stunning power of sacrificial love. As many of you know, our, our church has adopted, even put up front on the wall, love God and love others as a short way of referencing who we are and what we're doing here in living out our faith in this community. Jesus tells us those two commands, bottom line, Scripture. 
they summarize what following Jesus is all about. Love God with all of every part of you, he says, and love others as yourself, just like Jesus did. But do we really believe, do we really believe that's the best way to live or even to spread the gospel? Sacrificial love like that often seems so feeble when compared to other more impressive-looking powers in the world around us. And yet, because one tough-minded southern woman loved enough to lend a helping hand to a going-nowhere young man, his life and hers and who knows how many others impacted by their story, those lives were profoundly impacted and will never be the same. They are immeasurably blessed. God's idea to reach the world through sacrificial love is indeed brilliant, as it is deeply effective and powerful. Second, before she could be an instrument of God's powerful love, however, Leanne Tui had to notice and she had to act. You know, that's the biblical lesson of not only seeing or hearing, but also doing. That shouts from this movie. I mean, Leanne pretty much has it all by secular standards, even Christian ones, as she's a woman of faith. She's got a loving husband and family, two obedient kids, lots of money, a big house, a nice car. And it would be easy, understandable, expected even, for her not to even notice Michael Orr. But somehow she notices. And she not only notices, she also acts. Let's watch. Note especially, I love that moment when Leanne moves from notice and concern to action. Let's watch. What is he wearing? It's freezing. What's his name again? Big Mike. Where is he going? Hey, Big Mike. Where you headed? Jim. Go ahead. Turn around. Big Mike! Stop the car. Big Mike. Hey, my name's Leanne Tui. My kids go to Wingate. You said you were going to the gym. School gym's closed. Why were you going to the gym? Big Mike, why were you going to the gym? Because it's, it's warm. Do you have any place to stay tonight? Don't you dare lie to me.
seen that look many times. She's about to get her way. Come on. Come on. SJ make room. Get inside. Come on. Where are we going? Home. I often, um, I often struggle with noticing those who need help. And then even, even when I notice and feel concerned, I often get stuck there. Stuck on noticing and concern, and then that's it. And I, something, oh, to have those moments like Leanne did to not only notice, to not only be concerned, but to do something about it, even defiantly, even if it's one person at a time. To act. How many times do I fail to act when I notice and I'm concerned when someone needs help? Rationalize it away with the busyness of life or, well, it's really not going to make a difference anyway. Jesus defines his family this way in Luke 8, verse 21. My mothers and brothers, he says, are those who hear God's word and put it into practice. And Leanne is someone, her story is one that inspires me to notice and to act on what I already know. And that even a little sacrificial love goes a long, long way. You know, around here we hear and read and even recite the words, love God, love others, but do we always notice the others who need love? And when we notice, do we try and do something about it? I, as followers of Jesus, I, we need to constantly have our radar on. Intentionally. Looking carefully for the people and the situations that God will bring daily across our path. Is it an opportunity to help? To love? If so, how can I help? What can and should we do? I'm inspired by a secular movie to keep those questions consciously and constantly in mind. And after all, that's God's idea. Third, Paul tells us in Acts that Jesus once said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And the blind side is a shining example of that biblical truth, a truth that I'm not so sure we always believe or trust, sounds good to say, but is it really more blessed to give than to receive? Because to receive is a sweet blessing. As the movie unfolds, we see Leanne and her family begin to change and to be indeed blessed. And if you ask them today even, they will adamantly agree and insist 
that they were far more blessed by what they had received and continued to receive because they gave something to one man who needed help. I put together a, a few scenes where you can see Leanne and the Tui family begin to realize and experience they are indeed more blessed because they gave. Let's watch. Well, the best part about Paris was the food. They use sauce like we use gravy. I had to join a gym the day I got back. Oh. Have y'all spent much time on the other side of town? Where exactly are you talking about? Alabama Street, Hurt Village. Hurt Village? That sounds like a threat. <laughs> Not far off. I think it might hurt me to go there. It would hurt your reputation to go there. Well, actually, I'm from there, but didn't mind hard work, and look where I am now. Eating an $18 salad. <laughs> and it's a little soggy, to be honest. Leanne, what is a sudden interest in the projects? Is this another one of your charities? Wait. Project for the projects. <gasps> Ooh, that's catchy. <laughs> Y'all money would brace itself. Okay. Count me in, Leanne. <laughs> Break out the checkbooks. So, over here you have a desk, chest of drawers, you have a nightstand, a light, an alarm. Oh, and Sean says all the pro athletes use futons if they can't find a bed big enough, so I got you one of those. Of course, the frame was heinous. It's not about to let that in my house, but I got you something nicer. It's mine? Yes, sir. What? Never had one before. What, a room to yourself? A bet. Well, you have one now. Right. It's awesome. Michael, we have something we'd like to ask you. What? Well, Leanne and I, we, well, we'd like to become your legal guardians. What's that mean? What it means is, is that we want to know if you would like to become part of this family. kind of thought I already was. <laughs> well, all right then. Fourth, in Luke 9... For example, we're told that in choosing to follow Jesus, there's no looking back. We need to count the cost of no longer living our lives for ourselves, but living our lives in love of God and others. And sometimes this will cost us our friends. 
and put our families even at some risk. We'll face opposition when we love others as ourselves, as odd as that might sound. And Leanne got a taste of that, at least in these next scenes. Let's watch. Hey, baby, there's a couple messages on the machine, but I didn't check them. All right. Hey, Sean. Hey, Dan. Cousin Bobby. Happy New Year's. Listen, I've had about five cold ones. Of course you have. So I'm, I'm just going to go ahead and ask. Did y'all know there's a color boy in your Christmas cart? What? <laughs> you just looked teeny tiny next to him, right? Like Jessica Lang and King God. <laughs> hey, does Michael get the family discount at Taco Bell? Because if he does, Sean's going to lose a few stores. <laughs> He's a good kid. Well, I say you make it official and just adopt him. <laughs> uh, he's going to be 18 in a few months. Doesn't really make much sense to legally adopt. Leanne, is this some sort of white guilt thing? What will your daddy say? Um, before or after he turns over in his grave. Daddy's been gone five years, Elaine. Make matters worse, you were at the funeral. Remember? You wore Chanel in that awful black hat. Look, here's the deal. I don't need y'all to approve my choices, all right? But I do ask that you respect them. You have no idea what this boy's been through, and if this is going to become some running diatribe, I can find an overpriced salad a lot closer to home. Leanne, I'm so sorry. We didn't intend to... No, we didn't, really. I think what you're doing is so great. To open up your home to him and Honey, you're changing that boy's life. No. He's changing mine. And that's awesome for you, but what about Collins? What about Collins? Aren't you worried? I mean, even just a little... He's a boy, a large black boy, sleeping under the same roof. Shame on you. In March of last year, the Denver Post ran a story that caught my eye. The headline is, New Hampshire pastor takes in killer, stirs uproar. A pastor in this quiet, picturesque New England town thought he was doing the Christian thing when he took in a convicted child killer who had served his time but had nowhere to go. But some neighbors of Reverend Pinckney vehemently disagreed, one even threatening to burn his house down after officials could find no one else willing to take 60-year-old Raymond Guay. Politicians think they can dump their trash in our small town, said one neighbor whose girlfriend and two children live across a road from Pinckney's home. To Chester, a town of about 200 or 2,200 residents in south-central New Hampshire has been in an uproar since the weekend when police announced that Gway would spend two months with Pinckney's family. Forty residents protested at the home Saturday, the sheriff said. One man threatened to set it on fire. 
Town leaders were expected to ask officials to move Gwei. When we step out to love sacrificially like Jesus did, there will be a cost. Finally, this last one relates to the first one, really, the, the, the power of sacrificial love. The world doesn't quite know what to do with sacrificial love. And because it doesn't quite know what to do with it, it makes for a noticeable witness. Sacrificial love tends to shock the world. The world is wary and suspicious of sacrificial love. Just like the NCAA was suspicious of the TUI's motives in helping Michael. Let's watch that one a bit more. Did you know that the TUI's make generous donations to Ole Miss? That even Miss Sue makes donations? That the TUI's, they have a condo in Oxford so they can attend as many athletic events as possible. That in fact, both Sean and Leanne Tui are, by our definition, boosters. Mr. Orr, Mr. Orr, do you understand? Do you know why I'm here? To investigate? Yes, to investigate. I'm here to investigate your odd predicament. Do you find it odd, your predicament? Michael. I don't know. Can I, can I leave now? No, you can't. What do you want, ma'am? I want the facts. I need the truth. I didn't lie. And I want to know what you think about think all of about this. Think about what? NCAA fears that with your recruitment, a door might be opened. That boosters from lots of schools in the South will become legal guardians of young athletes without means and funnel them to their alma maters. I'm not saying I believe it. I'm not saying I don't. But there are many people involved in this case who would argue that the Tuis, they took you in. They clothed you. No. They fed you. They paid no. for your private education. They bought you a car no. and paid for a tutor. All no. is part of a plan to ensure that you play football for the University of Mississippi. Michael, we're not finished. Sacrificial love is something the world calls an odd predicament. It gets the world's notice. People blink twice at sacrificial love. They can't quite believe it's genuine and real and sincere. It's shocking to them. Maybe not as shocking as Chris Sage doing an announcement video in a Speedo. <laughs> but shocking nonetheless. You know, I leave for two weeks and our crack video production team goes absolutely nuts. 
Maybe you noticed no video announcements this morning. They're all in a timeout pending further notice. When we, when we love others as ourselves, when our soul and sincere motivation is love, the world is going to notice. And the most powerful witness of our God, a God, John says, is love. That witness just shines like the sun when we solely act out of a sincere love of others. Movies, even secular movies. I know it's probably a bit different than things that you've heard before. But it seems to me they can be tremendous tools in teaching the world about what it means to be a Christian. We enter into that conversation, enter into our culture's fascination with stories and movies and, and use them to illustrate and point to and measure against what we know is true, God's truth. Take Avatar, for example. I was disappointed to see some Christians calling for a ban on this movie because they felt it promotes paganism or pagan worship. Let's see. A story about sacrificial love versus self-interest and sacrificial love wins. A story about a man who becomes one of the people he saves. A story about a man who, because he loves sacrificially his own people and the ones he's trying to save, all reject him. And in the end, justice and love win. That's not James Cameron's story. It's God's story, and it seems to me there's an opportunity for Christians to enter the conversation surrounding that story. We can even point out, we can even point out that God found a way for us to live forever too, and you don't have to be sucked into the roots of a weird tree. Again, our story is more better. The Twilight books. And movies have been sweeping the nation, especially among teen girls and women. Why is that? Most say the ladies are caught up in the romance between Edward and Bella, and especially in the way Edward loves. Oh, Edward. Yes, Edward. Well, Christians know a little bit about someone who shows us a sacrificial, protective, fierce, empathetic, generous, powerful love that makes Edwards look silly by comparison. And Jesus doesn't struggle with wanting to shed our blood or needing to shed our blood so we can be with Him forever. Instead, He shed His own. Ours isn't needed to be together forever with Him. Oh, way better story. Way better love. And 
And God's love isn't so depressing either. At least in the movies. Please, someone buy Bella an ice cream or something. (laughs) We can enter the conversation over this movie too, it seems to me, and use it to point to God. In the blind side, for example, we see that there is real and stunning and life-changing power in sacrificial love. That's God's story. We learn that we need to notice when people need help and we need to act on our love and concern for them. That's God's story. We're also reminded that when we give sacrificially, it's going to cost us. But no matter the cost, to give sacrificially also brings great and profound blessing. That's God's story too. He's been telling it for generations. Blessings not only to those we help and love, but also to us because we gave of ourselves to others just like Jesus did. And in the blind side, we see that even a little sacrificial love can go a long, long way in a world that doesn't really know what to do with that type of love. A type of love that breaks even the hardest heart and opens a door deep within people through which the Holy Spirit can do His convicting work. All of that is God's story. Next week, we'll do something similar with the movie called The Island. One of my favorites, it's less obvious, I think, a Christian movie, but one of my favorite secular Christian movies because of its powerful witness of two particular and incredibly important biblical truths. And if I have time next week, I'll even throw in a bonus movie which shows something similar, but you have to find, you have to come back next week to find out what movie. It's about sports, gentlemen, so there's your hook to come back next week. Would you stand, please, for our closing prayer and benediction. Our benediction will be to end our prayer reciting Shema together. It'll be on the screen in just a couple seconds. We'll do the Hebrew responsively and then together in English as we close in prayer. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you've given us all sorts of different opportunities to point people to you and to salvation found in your Son and to what you're like and what we're to be like as followers of Jesus. Would you give us eyes to see? Give us that turn of the head. Give us that sensitivity to the prodding of the Holy Spirit to eagerly grasp any and all opportunities that we may have in our daily conversations even conversations about movies to point people to biblical truth and to you and to your Son. You've indeed given us the greatest story ever told, the greatest story ever lived, and we're still living it today. Help us, Father. Help us, Father, to be able to invite in a winsome way, invite in the way that you could use to show people how much it is you love them and want to know them too as their Lord and their Savior.
and their guide. Father, we love you, and uh, we ask this in Jesus' name. Father, we close this morning with pledging our love to you by reciting your summary of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Let's do the Hebrew responsibly and the English together. Shema Israel. Adonai Eloheinu. Adonai Echad. Ve'ahavta et Adonai Eloeka. Behol levavka. Uvahol nafshaka. Uvahol meodeka. Uveahafta reacha kamocha. Amen. Together in English, please. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And love your neighbor as yourself. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Have a great week. God bless you all. We'll see you soon.